Luke 19, starting at verse 45. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will, uh, sorry, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we do not know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one was also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which, it, which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, your word and your spirit. We pray that your spirit would be working amongst us and working amongst our children as well now as we look at your word. Help us to uh, know more of Jesus. Help us to know more of your plan and purpose that we would be men and women and boys and girls who live with Jesus as our Lord. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Sometimes the best way of answering a question is by asking a question back. I once heard a lady ask a pastor a question about animals, and her question was this. She said to the pastor, are there dogs in heaven? Now, if I'd been the pastor who'd received that question, I would have enthusiastically grabbed my Bible and started explaining to her all sorts of theological stuff about animals and about heaven and who's in heaven and what's in heaven. And but thankfully she didn't ask me, and uh, because in his wisdom, I heard the pastor answer her by asking her a question. 
Has your best friend just died? And see, she didn't need answers. She needed comfort because she was grieving the loss of her pet. That's why she wanted to know if dogs are in heaven. Answering a question by asking a question can get to the real issue uh, a lot quicker, the real issue which is on the heart of the questioner. Now, of course, it's also a helpful um, strategy if uh, you're actually suspicious of the person who's asking the question. I had a friend whose father was a Pakistani diplomat in Canberra. And I don't know why, but perhaps it was the, uh, that he grew up in this world of international relations that whenever I asked my friend a question, he would always look me in the eye and say, why do you ask? He'd ask me a question. Why do you ask? I found that dreadfully unnerving. I mean, you know, I wasn't asking questions like, hey, you know, has your dad told you any secrets about Pakistan's nuclear weapons program? Or, you know, I was questioning, I was asking, how are you? Why do you ask? Is what he would say. Why do you ask? Whew. I stopped asking him questions after a while. <laughs> but how, how much more unnerving would it be if, if I did have a hidden agenda? How much more unnerving would it be for the person who had actually designed their question in order to, to trap the other person? How much more unnerving would it be for them to have their trapping question answered by another question to unmask their motivations? Such was the case when Jesus entered the place which was at the very heart of religious life in Israel, at the temple in Jerusalem, where Jesus was confronted uh, by, the, uh, by the peak leaders in the nation, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders of the people, uh, where in uh, Luke Chapter 20, verse 2, they ask Jesus a question. Now, let me read that question for you. They said to him, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? They said, who gave you this authority? That's their question. And it's a question which, uh, which really... Um, raises, I, I think this is really, that verse is like the topic sentence of this whole slab of scripture because it, it's, it's the key uh, which unlocks the, uh, the meaning of the rest of this passage. Uh, and it's a question which Jesus answers them by, guess how he does it? He answers their question with a question. Now, their question to Jesus about by what authority he was doing these things, was provoked by the action which Jesus took when he entered the courtyards of the temple. Now, let me read that for you in chapter 19, verse 45. Uh, then Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of 
but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, we've <clears throat> most of us know that story of Jesus driving out the, uh, the merchants from the temple. It's helpful to understand how that happened and why that happened. Remember, this was the Passover time. This was, this was peak season in Jerusalem. If you, were, if you were getting accommodation, you'd be paying top dollar for it. There was lots of people, people who had travelled long distances from uh, many parts of the, uh, of the world around in the Mediterranean, the Middle East and other parts of, of uh, Palestine, who had travelled to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, when you've got to travel a long distance to worship God in, in Jerusalem, uh, you don't necessarily bring your animal sacrifices along with you. Uh, your, uh, <clears throat> your, your sheep and your pigeons. and you'd, you'd actually buy those once you've arrived uh, in the city. And the other thing is that um, uh, people had to exchange their money. The reason for that is this. In, in Exodus chapter 30, uh, Jews were required to, to pay a, uh, what was, became known as the temple tax. And uh, that was a, um, an annual half shekel offering. Now, a shekel is a, a unit of weight in silver. Uh, and uh, in Jesus' day, there was a, a silver coin which weighed half a shekel. Uh, it's called the Tyrian half shekel, I think, from the city of Tyre. And so uh, worshippers could actually obtain one of these half shekels of silver coin uh, by bringing their cash and having it exchanged uh, in Jerusalem and then they could go and put their half shekel of silver uh, into the, uh, uh, the offertory at the temple. So th the point of what, what I'm making here is that there was a, a valid need to have a marketplace uh, in fact, there were four marketplaces that had been set up. The local council, the Sanhedrin, had set up four marketplaces which were located uh, on the, the Mount of Olives. Problem was this, that the, the high priest, uh, whose name was Caiaphas, uh, he wanted a cut of the action. And so in 30 AD, he decided to set up his own marketplace, on his turf so that he could make some profit and his turf being the temple the temple now imagine the temple precinct uh, in the middle of it you've got the the actual temple the the, the building uh, which is much much smaller than the whole of the the the, the temple precinct you've got the the building of the temple in the middle, with the, its centrepiece being the uh, the Holy of Holies, but outwards from the the building, you've got various courts where various categories of people could go in order to worship God. And so, you, first of all, uh, working outwards from that centrepiece, you've got the the court of the men. Then outwards from there, you've got the court of the women. The largest, by far the largest court, the, the outer court, was called the court of the Gentiles. 
which I take it as pretty much us. I don't come across too many ethnically Jewish people. These I had a conversation with one yesterday, uh, with a Jewish man yesterday. And some of us here might have some Jewish blood, but uh, basically we're Gentiles. We are Gentile believers. And this was really quite significant because remember that uh, Israel was always to be a light to the nations. Uh, was to the, the word of the Lord was to go out from Israel uh, to the, uh, the, the Gentiles. And here we have, in the first century, there are Gentiles who had trusted in the God of Israel. Uh, they, they loved the true Lord. They had repented of their idolatry. And they would go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God, particularly at this time of Passover. And they would do so in the court of the Gentiles. Mind you, they could get close, but not too close to the Holy of Holies. Uh, They were restricted to the court of the Gentiles. And there were were signs uh, above the gates that led into the court of the women uh, which said that uh, uh, if Gentiles passed through the, those gates, they would be responsible for their own death. Uh, so you're welcome, but not too welcome. And, and actually, archaeologists have found uh, some of those signs. I, I was hoping to have got a picture of one for you today, but um, we, we have some of those signs uh, are still in existence. Um, However, they could worship the Lord God of Israel in the court of the Gentiles except for one thing. What had become of the court of the Gentiles? It had become a marketplace. This house of prayer had been transformed into a one-stop oriental bazaar. Uh, You could... You could buy wine, you could buy oil, you could buy salt, you could buy livestock, you could even cash, uh, you can even change your cash there at the money lender's table. And all of this, friends, was courtesy of the senior religious leader of Israel, the high priest. How about that? Jesus was furious. Jesus was angry. God's house of prayer was now a den of robbers and at the expense of repentant Gentiles who, praise God, had come to worship the Lord. See what's going on there? Now, as you would expect, under the temple management structure, the governance principles and so on, there was only certain people of very high authority who could make changes in the way that things were done in the temple precinct. And Jesus wasn't one of them. But yet in verse 45, Jesus made some changes big time. Because what did he do? He drove out the merchants and he shut down the commerce. Now, Jesus had been on a collision course with Israel's spiritual elite for some time, but now there was something had to be done about him. This was a step too far. And so in verse 47, the religious leaders and the authorities, they conspired with one another because they wanted Jesus dead. 
But they were frustrated because whilst they did not like Jesus, the crowds, well, they were uh, captivated by Jesus because of his teaching. And so the religious leaders, they needed to find a good reason to arrest Jesus so that they could do away with him, but they had to be able to do so without inciting the crowds to turn against them. Now, this is why in verse 2 they ask their question. By what authority do you do these things? So I, I don't think it's just because they're cranky with him because he's usurped their authority. Uh, it's a trap. Because they want him to answer in such an explicit way that they can charge him with blasphemy. Jesus has already made it quite clear who he is, that he is the Messiah, because as we saw last week when he rode into Jerusalem, he did so on the back of a donkey, which was in fulfilment of Zechariah chapter 9, which was about the coming of the Lord to his temple. And so implicitly, people knew what Jesus was saying, that he is the Messiah, that he is God's king, but he hadn't spoken it out loud. And they were seeking for him to do that so they could slap a charge of blasphemy upon him. So they ask him the question, who gave you the right to interfere with the temple? By what authority do you do these things? Um, in verses 3 and 4, we see that, uh, how Jesus replied. He replied to their question by asking them a question. Verse 3, he replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? It's a good question. That's a clever question. Because it's, it's actually a question, it's not just a question about, um, uh, about theology, it's a question about authority. And that is, by whose authority did John baptise people? Was it by his own authority? Or did he act with the authority of God? You see, they've been trying to trap Jesus with their question, but now Jesus has actually trapped them. Now they are trapped, because if they say, well, John's baptism, well, it was from heaven, then they have got a bigger question to answer. And the question is this, well, why then do you not believe the things that John said about Jesus? So they can't say that. But if they say that John's baptism was of human origin, then they'll be lynched because the crowds were convinced that John was a prophet, the average person in the pews, if you like, believed that John was a prophet. So they couldn't say that. They are trapped. So what do you do when you feel trapped and you don't want to ask, answer a question? Well, I just say, look, I'll pass on that one, please. <laughs> That's exactly what they did in verse 7. Have a look at verse 7. In verse 7, they say, well, we don't know where he was from. How about that? The senior religious leaders of the nation don't know where John the Baptist was from. <laughs> they don't have a clue. So they say, because they're trapped. So Jesus then passes on their question as well. He passes on their question because uh, uh, Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. 
The reason that Jesus passes on their question is not only because he, he doesn't, he's not going to explicitly say what they want him to say, and not only is it that he's just not going to play their game, and it's because they all know that the correct answer to his question is also the correct answer to their question. And so instead, in verse 9, Jesus tells a story. It's about a man who planted a vineyard, which he then went and rented out to some tenant farmers. In verse 10, come harvest time, the owner of the vineyard sent a servant to go and to collect the rent. Uh, the farmers, though, didn't want to cough up. So they beat the servant. They bashed him up. And then the owner went and sent another servant. And then another servant and another servant. And each time, the tenant farmers rejected the servant and they beat the servant up. You can imagine people sitting on the edge of their seats thinking, you know, this is fascinating. What's, where's this heading? Well, eventually, the owner of the vineyard decided to send his own son to collect the rent, hoping that they might respect him. Wishful thinking. Because in Jewish tradition, if a landlord's only son died, then when the landlord died, the tenants would inherit the land. And that explains verse 14. In verse 14, But when the tenants saw him, that is the son, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Now, Jesus has not told this story because he's just interested in real estate and, <clears throat> and rentals and agriculture and that sort of stuff. The religious leaders are trapped again because they knew what he was saying. They knew that the prophet Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 2, Isaiah identifies... Uh, the nation of Israel as being God's vineyard. And the priests uh, were those who were to manage God's vineyard. They were to cultivate the vineyard. And throughout Israel's history, God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to his vineyard to reap a harvest of righteousness. But the prophets kept on being rejected. Think of the prophets of Amos and Jeremiah, for example. They were rejected, turned away, beaten, even killed. And who was it that killed them? It wasn't the average person in the pew. We won't be able to say that too much longer, will we? It was the religious leaders, the priests. Jesus had infuriated his enemies with this story because, again, whilst he's not saying explicitly, implicitly he's saying that he is God's son. It's not explicit enough for a blasphemy charge, but it's clear enough to get the point across. Because in verse 19, they knew that he was speaking about them. So what did they do? Well, ironically, 
<laughs> they decided, well, we're going to do the very thing that he said that we're going to do and therefore prove that we are the people that are in his story. They decided that they're going to kill him. Now, there's no surprises here, is there? As we've been tracking the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem from Luke chapter 9 onwards, there's been multiple times when Jesus said, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and when the Son of Man is in Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected by the uh, by the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law, and he's going to be killed. No surprises here. But why would he be killed? Well, what Jesus says after this parable actually tells us the purpose of this. Because uh, in this passage, uh, he said something which, after his death, would keep on coming back to challenge uh, God's enemies those who are opposed to the gospel. And we see this in verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them. By the way, can you imagine that? Can you imagine being eyeballed by Jesus? My goodness. He he looked directly at them and he asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? And he quotes here, uh, from, he quotes from Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. As I say, this is a quote from Psalm 118. Now, in that psalm, uh, the nation of Israel was hemmed in on all sides by her enemies. Uh, God's enemies were attacking God's people. And in that context Israel was described as being like a stone a stone which the enemies had rejected but the psalm says that God would cause Israel to be victorious so that the stone that metaphorically the builders rejected in fact becomes the capstone and on a building the capstone at the top of the building holds the holds the roof together, holds the structure together. It's the most important stone in the entire building. The, the, the stone the builders has rejected has become the capstone. Now, by quoting that verse, what is Jesus saying about the priests, and the elders and the teachers of the law? He's saying that they are the enemies of God from Psalm 118, that they are the opponents of God's people. Now, in a matter of days, these very tenant farmers would in fact fulfil what Jesus had said and they would kill the son of the vineyard owner. But God would give him the victory because soon afterwards Jesus would be resurrected He would be raised from the grave. And it would not be long after that before his disciples, as transformed men, would be preaching that our sins can be forgiven through Jesus' death on the cross. But friends, if they hated Jesus, then they will hate his followers as well. And the disciples found that they too were attacked by the religious elite. I wonder if you might come with me just for a moment to, um, to Acts chapter 4. 
Because in Acts chapter 4, there's a story where Peter and John had miraculously healed a, a crippled man. Now, this is the man who, after he was healed, he went, uh, was it walking and leaping and praising God? Anyone want to come up and sing the song for us? Uh, there's a song about this guy that uh, he went walking, and I won't, uh, won't cause you to suffer by me singing it. <clears throat> walking and leaping and praising God. And this caused people to be irate. In verse 5, these disciples faced the same kind of grilling from the same kind of people who questioned Jesus. Have a look at verse 5. Let me read it to you. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. These are the religious elite. And they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? What's your authority? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, this is the authority. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is... The stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. And salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The religious leaders, they wanted to know who gave Jesus the authority to evict the traders out of the temple. Well, Jesus didn't answer them explicitly, did he? But the disciples answered explicitly. When the same men asked them in whose name they had acted when they healed this cripple, they had no hesitation. It was in the name of Jesus Christ. The stone, and he directs it directly to them, who you rejected. <laughs> but through the resurrection, God has made him the capstone. So, in whose name did Jesus clear the temple? By whose authority? Well, actually, it was in his, in his own name, to be honest, because he had all authority over his father's house. In whose name was the cripple healed? In Jesus' name. For he now has authority over all of the world. And in whose name, most importantly, can you and I be saved from the penalty of our sin? What does it say? In Jesus' name, for there's no other name under heaven by which we must call in order to be saved. Do you know, notice who it is that can be saved? It's, it's people like you and, you and me. Uh, some of us may have some Jewish blood, but figure out of the air, 95% of us, our blood is Gentile blood. Gentiles. Gentiles. And if you go back to the Luke uh, 20 passage, did you notice in verse 16 
when Jesus is telling the parable about the, the vineyard and the, and the tenants and so on, that he said that uh, after they killed the son, that the owner of the vineyard would not only punish those tenant farmers, but what was he going to do with the, with the vineyard? He's going to give it away to others. Now, how did the crowd react to that? Did you notice their reaction? They, they were shocked. They were absolutely stunned that he should say this. May it never be, they declare. In some versions that translate that as, God forbid, God forbid that the vineyard should be given to others. Why such a stark reaction? Well, I think it's because they understood what Jesus was saying. That the kingdom of God would now be handed over to others, to all people, to all races, to all nationalities, to the Gentiles, to people like us. How about that? That's why they were stunned. When the Apostle Peter wrote his first letter, 1 Peter, in chapter 1 he addresses his letter to God's people who are scattered and living in all sorts of different places all over the known world. And he's just not talking about the Jewish diaspora. He's talking about all of God's people, Gentiles included. And in chapter 2, he says that through the gospel, we have come to Jesus, who is, he describes, the living stone, rejected by men, but now he is the capstone, the one who holds the temple together. And then Peter goes on, to talk about us. You see, the confrontation in Luke chapter 19 began when Israel's leaders had desecrated the court of the Gentiles, turned it into a marketplace, into a den of thieves, meaning that the Gentiles were not really all that able to worship God as they pleased. But now, the great wonder of the gospel in 1 Peter chapter 2 is that we Gentiles, who had been excluded, who could not go any further into the temple on pain of death, that we are now described as being living stones. Living stones, you are a living stone. We are all living stones and together with all people of all places and all races and all ages who love the Lord Jesus Christ, forget the court of the Gentiles because joined together, we actually are the temple. We are the temple now, the temple of God, the, the, in whom God dwells by his spirit. That which the temple in Jerusalem pointed towards 
finds its complete fulfilment in us. And we are described by Peter as also being the priesthood. Forget the high priest and the chief priest and the teachers. We are the priests. We are the priests because we can help to tell others about how they can get to know God through Jesus. And now, in thankfulness to God for Jesus, we don't have to go and buy animals to sacrifice up at an altar because the great sacrifice has already been made for us when Jesus went to the cross. So that now, says Peter, we still offer up sacrifices, but it is the sacrifice of our very selves, of our very lives, that we give over to God in gratitude for this great truth that the stone the builders rejected has now become our capstone who holds us together. Jews, Gentiles, now and for all of eternity, that we might give thanks and praise to God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you so much, Lord God, that he confronted sin and uh, that he was obedient to your will, even as it led him to a hill outside of Jerusalem where he became the sacrifice for us. We thank you, Father God, that uh, the vineyard has been handed over to all the world and that you have been pleased to call us as Gentiles who have been grafted into your, your people, that we might be those who praise you and worship you as your temple forever and ever. And help us, Lord God, to not be religious hypocrites, but rather be those who are genuinely faithful to you and obedient and loving and trusting all of our days. Amen.